Okay? I'm glad you're here. Um, today, uh, my, uh, my youngest daughter uh, turns 10 today. Today is her, her birthday. Her, her name is uh, Talia, which uh, it's, uh, it's a two-part name. Tal means do. Um, and, uh, and then Hashem's name, is a, one of Hashem's names, is, is attached to the, to the end, the yud and the hey. So it means uh, the, the do of God, I guess. It would be the translation of Talia. It's a beautiful name. Do in, in Torah is, is something very special. The, the Gomorrah um, talks about the, the seven levels of heaven. When we talk about, I'm in seventh heaven, if you ever heard that expression, that's sort of like crossed over into English. Um, that, that's rooted in the Torah understanding of, of, of the, the uh, sort of the geography of, of heaven, if you will. That there are seven stratas of heaven and that in each strata there are certain things going on. And you can actually look at it and read about all the different kind of things that are going on in the different levels. And do, believe it or not, is from the seventh heaven. It's from the highest level of heaven. And that's actually kind of interesting just on a design level because um, do is something that comes from the bottom of the ground. So you see that really the roots of it are all the way on the top of heaven and yet it manifests in this very sort of quiet um, beautiful way, just you wake up and the grass is wet. It's an incredible thing because you don't see it like rain. The, the contrast to do is rain. Rain comes down and it's a very visible event. Do, which is this life-giving phenomena. It's, it's a phenomena. It's, a, it's like a miraculous type thing. And it gives life. It's, it, it happens without us even being aware of it. And so this is a very sort of potent uh, metaphor or visualization or key to how God so often interacts with us that, that his presence is manifest whether we're aware of it or not. And this is an important um, foundation for us to understand because there's something, there's, I, I like to call it bad math. There's some bad math that um, almost all of us do um, and it's on a, an emotional level. And, and what we say is the following. God is with me to the extent that I feel his presence. And this is completely incorrect. God is with you whether you feel his presence or not. God is with you whether you deny his existence or not. God is an unalienable fact that exists no matter what. And it's not contingent on your level of belief. And... And, uh, you know, another piece of bad math which goes along with this is, and, and, and this is now uh, sort of probably more relevant to, quote-unquote, the religious mind, but again, equally uh, incorrect, which is that God exists to the extent that I believe he exists. A lot of people feel that way. He exists to the extent that I believe he exists. God is awesome and infinite, and you can believe that he's X, Y, and Z, and it doesn't matter. God continues to be God, no matter what you think about the, the limitations of his, of his power. So, so one shouldn't make that mistake either. And when, as, as long as we're throwing in mistakes, I'll throw in another mistake that a lot of people make. I heard this from Rabbi Green, and I thought it was very, very, very important, which is a lot of us think that God is a smarter, more powerful, you know, wiser, just, you know, greater version of 
me or you or us. But that's not it. God is beyond, 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 beyond. It, we're not, in, in, in some ways, there's a, we're, we're sort of a microcosm in that um, we have a lot of the, we have a soul which is a piece of God and, you know, there are correlations. But to think that that's who God is or what God is, just a greater version of us, it's completely off. God is way beyond that. Way, way, way beyond that. So this concept of doom is really is really important because do is sort of present and it and it appears and it appears when we can't see it and and it just it's just there and it gives life so um so with that as a introduction uh uh, we had Talia, I guess, 10 years ago today. And my wife and I were trying to think of a name for her. And our three other kids, we, we all had names for before they were born. Because they were named after people and things like that. And one's name came in a dream, so that, that was taken care of. So, so there was an open slot. So this was the first time that we had to think of a name. And... You know, the, a name of a person, your, your Hebrew name is, is very, very important. It's, it's the mission of your soul in this world. So if you want to find out more about yourself, you, you can explore your name and what your name says about you. Because it says that one of the last vestiges of prophecy in this world is the parent's ability to um, name their child. We say that to this day. It's very heavy. It's very intense because... What that means is, you know, people don't think through what that actually means. What that means is that you're not giving the name to the child, but if it's a level of prophecy, what it means is the child is telling you its name and you're able to hear it on some level, on a, on a soul level, on an intuitive level. So this is very amazing, you know, that, that, the, that, that the parent is understanding what the soul of this child is on some level, on a very deep level. And so your, your name is your mission. So that's, um, that, 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 can, that can be a, a key to uh, further uh, levels of um, self-discovery. So what you name a child is, is very, very important. Now, in the here and now, on a very practical level, you are picking a name. Right? I mean, as much as the dynamics that I just described in terms of the prophetic aspect of it and all the rest is true, in the here and now, you're opening up a book and you're going down names or you're going on a website and you're saying, well, does this sound to my ear? You know, the mechanics of it are very sort of meat and potatoes, somewhat mundane, you know? But nonetheless, there's something very cosmic going on on a deeper level. So uh, I thought that... Um, I thought that a name would come to us and that that would not be a difficult process. You know, and, um, and we really struggled. We couldn't, we couldn't come up with a, with a name. And we couldn't figure out what's, what's the name going to be. And, uh, and then it... it uh, and like I said, we had never actually gone through the process of this before. And then it actually became uh, disheartening at a certain point because I thought, wow, you know, if, if this is sort of like this moment of revelation and, and all the rest, and 
God, why aren't you telling us the name? You know, not that we should hear a voice and that's it, I'm not talking about that, but that we should agree and feel comfortable and like it, and that would be the sort of the here and now rolling out of the process. We'd go, oh yeah, that's a good name and everything like that, and we'd feel comfortable with it. And then that would be, you know, that, that, that would be how it plays out in the here and now, this, this sort of more mystical process, right? So, um, so, so we didn't have the name, and it felt at a certain extent that like, you know, not to get uh, overly dramatic about it, but I felt a little bit like we had, or I had been abandoned by God, you know? This sense that I need to know this name and you're not telling me the name. I, I'm not comfortable with any of these choices and we can't agree on something and it's like, it's not resonating. And so that, that was difficult. That was difficult because it felt like, at, you know, at a special moment like this, you, it, just should, it just should come more, more naturally, more easily. And, um, you know, uh, when it comes to the naming of a boy, you do that at the bris. So there's a, uh, you know, that's the eighth day. That's a, that's, that's a set moment, okay? But when it comes to the naming of a girl, you, you have a little more flexibility. So there are two kind of like um, paths that people follow with that. One is they'll uh, do it uh, the first Shabbos that the, that, the, that the girl is born, and they'll do it by the Torah. Right, you have to do it by the Torah either way, but so it's more of an event because the community is gathered on Shabbos and everything like this. But what if the what if the girl is born on say Sunday, or Tuesday, whatever it is? So there's an earlier opportunity to name the child because we read the Torah on Monday and on Thursday and on Shabbos. So 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 another approach would be I want to give her her name as soon as possible. And it's, you know, will be less of an event. Fewer people will be there. But nonetheless, she, she got her name, you know. So we were in that second category. We wanted to do it as quickly as possible. So I was going to the Daily Minion. I don't remember whether it was Monday or Thursday. I guess it was Thursday, I think. So, um, and uh, we had been up pretty late the previous night with no answers. And the next morning, we, we still didn't have the name. And now the Torah was being taken from the Ark to the bima, to the table where it was going to be read, which is a fairly short walk, and we still didn't have the name. And so that's, you know, this is it. you got to have the name at this point. And I ran out of the shul into the little hallway outside, and I called my wife, who was still in the hospital, and I was like, okay, we, we, we had narrowed it down to two names. And on that phone call, I was like, you know, the, the door is about to be on the table there, you know. we got to pick one. And she was like, I don't know. And I was like, okay, do you trust me? And she says, yes. And so I hung up the phone, and I went in. And I decided, we were deciding between two names. I decided, it's going to be Talia. That's it. And again, I didn't have that sort of like spiritual feeling necessarily about it. I just felt like, okay, just it's going to be Talia. Okay. So, so anyway, I'm a lady, which means I get the uh, second Aliyah. So I'm going to come up in the second Aliyah. And the first, uh, the first aliyah, the first portion of that, that piece of the Torah is, is being read. And it's just a few lines. It's just like three lines. And here, here are the lines. Um, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And may the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teachings drop like the rain. May my utterance flow like the dew. 
which is tal. And right after I had decided that it's going to be talia, which is the word tal, right, right after I decided here in the Torah, in this very, very short aliyah, just a few lines, the word tal came. And it's only a few mentioned a few times in the entire Torah. Right? And so, to me, this was a very emotional experience. And it, it underscores what I was telling you in the beginning of this talk, that the do is always there. That, that God is always there, even if you decide that he's not. He's still there. And then you can even say, you know what, he doesn't exist. He's still there. It's sort of like, he doesn't love me. He continues to love you. It's what it is. This is what it is. You see, one of the, one of the most perplexing and fantastic, in a way, aspects of the human condition is the fact that we get to decide things. We have free choice. We can create a reality for ourselves. But the downside of that is that we can also create a false reality for ourselves. And we can do it, but it's just like, yeah, well. But it's wrong. See, we come from a, um, I'll speak for myself, but I think this is true for most of us. We come from this Western liberal um, uh, tradition. You know, America is certainly the, Apotheosis? I'm sure I'm, mis- I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. The culmination of it, you know? Uh, where it's sort of like, whatever you think, whatever you do, that's the right thing. That's the right thing. You know, I remember I went to public school growing up as a kid, and, and to me it's sort of like, it all kind of like is, it boils down to like a, like the teacher handing out a poem in third grade and you read it and the teacher says, what's this poem about? And one kid says, it's about an elephant. And she says, you're right. And another kid says, it's about an elf. She says, you're right. And the other guy says, oh, it's about, you know, my mom, you're right. And everybody's right. Except that doesn't actually work with reality. (laughs) It sort of does. It sort of does, because God doesn't stop you and go, no, in so many words, and then sort of like hand a book to you and say, read page 12. That doesn't happen. And so we get to sort of like form our own kind of thing. But when it comes to the most important aspects, the foundation of our world, of our life, of our responsibilities, and things like this, those things are actually set. There actually are, so to speak, house rules. And, and to the extent that we acknowledge that is the extent that we actually live within reality. So this Talia moment for me was so important because it told me that even at that moment where I wasn't hearing or resonating with anything and I was feeling abandoned, that God was there the entire time. No matter what my feeling was, he was no less there. And again, that's undermining, that's in direct contrast to what I'm calling this bad math, that we think that God is there to the extent that we feel that he's there. 
So he's there. He, he's there always. Now, I want to go deeper into this idea. And, and, and you see, there's... Now, I've done a little reading on this, and I'm, I'm not pretending that what I'm about to tell you is a, a scholarly presentation at all. And, you know, I, this is just based on some very superficial reading. So, so uh, uh, if I'm off, I'm off. But I, I, I just think it's worth going through it because I think it's right. And, uh, and it marks a turning point anyway. So, so I think it's just valuable anyway. And that's... You see, in terms of um, modern intellectual history, to the extent of my understanding, uh, Immanuel Kant represents a certain type of turning point. And, and as I understand it, it's the following. You see, uh, w- one of his thoughts was that basically that the senses lie. And that, you know, we're going to filter everything through our senses and everything like that. And that, that makes a lot of sense. But I think that he took it a step further, to my understanding, which is that, that all of reality essentially is, is based on what we perceive it to be. In other words, that we are deciding on what reality is, that we are the ultimate authorities on what reality is, period. Now, again, there's, there's absolutely a certain truth to that, but there's also a certain mistruth to that. Because if we're functioning within a structured system, we can't decide ultimately on what the on, on what the framework is. But there's a shift that took place where everyone decided that they are the ultimate authorities, and it happened at some point during the modern era, within the last several hundred years, where all of a sudden we decided that every single one of us gets to decide and that whatever we say is the last word precisely because we decided it. Because I decided it, this is truth, this is truth for me, so that means this is truth. Now that model, which has been enshrined by every advertiser, (laughs) every TV show, every movie theme, right? Everything is fundamentally incorrect. Because... There is a reality, there is a structure to existence which is not contingent upon whatever I decide that morning it is. Now, I'm giving you this, all of this as an introduction to a, a, a verse, a pasuk in the Torah, because I want to contextualize it for you so that you, you understand what this is, which is that God was ahead of us in terms of this. God anticipated that we were going to do this. And he says something very specifically and this feels like such a modern, such a modern quote that I'm about to read you, that 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 it's sort of like. Let me put it another way. You see, you can't outsmart God. That's that's the bottom line. Now listen to this passage, okay? It's from Parshas Vayelech. It's uh, chapter thirty-one, and um, oh, I'm sorry. That is. Uh, had the wrong page there. It's uh, actually Parshas Nitzavim, a few pages before, chapter 29, and it's uh, verse 18. 
And, and Hashem, God is telling us not to do the following, okay? And it will be that when he hears the words of this imprecation, like all these um, uh, uh, laws and whatnot, he will bless himself in his heart, saying, and now this next phrase is, is very resonant, and it has many, many different ways to translate it from the Hebrew. And if you want to see like a, a wonderful sort of like compendium of different translations, Rabbi Ari Kaplan in the Living Torah has a whole paragraph of different ways to translate the following phrase. But the one here in the art scroll is, 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 is very nice also. Um, and, and the following. So again, God is saying, don't do this. You hear the different um, mitzvot of the Torah and you say the following. So he's saying, don't say the following. Peace will be with me though I walk as my heart sees fit. I'll say it again. Peace will be with me, though I walk as my heart sees fit. Meaning to say, I'm the ultimate authority, and you know what? If it feels like this in my heart, that's what it is, and everything's going to work out, because that's the way it seems to me in my own heart. That's a very dangerous game. (laughs) A very dangerous game. And I think it's an utterly modern statement because I think that if you want to sort of like do an x-ray of what people think about religion and God and everything like that, these words are going to show up on the x-ray. I think this is where people are at today. I'll decide, and if it feels right with me in my heart, peace will be with me, and it goes on even further. That, that, that they'll bless themselves with this. So there's this like, you know, if you want to get a little tough, I mean, we'll use a little bit of harsh, harsh language right here. A person is making a God out of themselves. They're saying, I'm the ultimate authority. It all boils down to how I feel about it in my heart, and that will be a blessing for me. Wow. Wow. That's, whoa. So you get to decide everything, and then bless her. You consecrate it. Pretty nice, nice, that's some fancy footwork there, isn't it? Meanwhile, God's standing by going, really? 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 You know? Yeah? Okay. Okay, maybe we'll figure it out this next year. So, so, so we have to be really careful. We have to be really, really careful. And I'll tell you, Just one of my favorite stories, maybe again, but it's just so relevant. I was once uh, uh, privileged to to stay at a a friend's apartment and um, and, uh, with my wife a number of years ago in, in New York City, and it was very centrally located, so it was really nice, and they were very generous, and, um, and uh, they gave us a key to their place, and they told us, come and go as you like, and everything like this. And it was really, it was wonderful. Actually, I had a, a miracle, you know, this is just a total aside, but I'll just tell you anyway. I had a miracle that happened to me while I was staying there, which is, um, as I was leaving, the, the woman of the house said to me, uh, you know, why don't you take an umbrella? And I was like, well, it just seemed like a bother to take an umbrella, and it didn't seem like it was raining so much outside. And I was like, no, I'm okay. And she said, no, 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 take an umbrella. 
I'm like, no, I, I don't want to take an umbrella. And she said, please, just take an umbrella. She's like, okay, I'll take an umbrella. So, so she gives me one of these, you know, the, sometimes you've got like those really big umbrellas? So she gives me like a big umbrella. And so I walk out, and I think for, I know that I opened it as I left the canopy of the building. So it must have been raining a little bit, but it wasn't raining hard at all. Maybe it was just drizzling, you know. So I open up the umbrella, and we walk about 10 feet, and all of a sudden something hits the top of the umbrella. And there had been some workers on the sixth floor, and the guy had swung a hammer backward, smashed the glass of the window, and it fell on my head. But because I had that umbrella, it bounced off, and it didn't touch me. Right? I have the chills, you know, telling you. And I looked up, like, when I figured out what was going on, and I saw the worker look out the window, see that nothing had happened, and went and gave, you know, like a classic New Yorker kind of, eh, and went back to work. <laughs> Not aware of what almost just happened, you know? So, anyway, it was in this, it was in this apartment. Shabbos came, and, uh, you know, they were people of means, and um, they had a big Shabbos table, and they had invited a bunch of guests, and the table was filled with silver, and and really it was very elegant, very, 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 you know, sort of kingly. And the host was quiet, and he sat at the head of the table, hardly said anything, and I was kind of very sort of feeling very, you know, excited and, and whatnot, and I was telling a lot of stories and, and giving over Torah teachings and everything like that, and really kind of, uh, kind of sort of doing that. And, and, and at the end of the meal, I walked the guest to the door with the host, and I, I thanked the guest for coming. <laughs> <laughs> and after I did that, by the door, I, was, I had this moment of realization, and I was humiliated. I was like, here I am, a guest in this person's home, and I'm acting like the host. And then it hit me like a ton of bricks. Here I am, so many of us. Here we are in this world. And we're guests in this world, and we're acting like the host. Right? We're guests in this world. We're guests in this world. And it's so easy for us to just come and say, peace will be with me, though I walk as my heart sees fit. And I'll bless myself at the same time. Right? We're guests in this world. We get to make certain decisions. And our, the decisions that we make are huge. And God wants us to make these decisions. He gives us this huge amount of autonomy. I mean, if you think about it, this crazy amount of autonomy. Right? What we can actually do with our free will is scary. It's scary how much rope God gives us, how much leeway God gives us. It's crazy if you think about it. I mean, it, it, you see, a lot of people misinterpret it. Most people misinterpret it. They see that God is giving us so much leeway and so much rope that they wonder, how much is God running the world? How present is God? And yet, how almighty do you have to be to give us that much rope, that much leeway, and still be 1,000% running the world. 
I mean, that's really awesome. If you want to think of how awesome God is, right? That he can make it so that he'll even allow tons of people to say that he doesn't even exist. And meanwhile, he's running absolutely everything. This is really unbelievable, you know? It's incredible. So, so that, that brings us to the next point, which is, see, I was trying to think of like a, just a, a, a crazy kind of, a crazy kind of like parable or mushal just to illustrate what I want to tell you, just building on, on the, these ideas. And I haven't got a good one, so I'm just going to tell you something nutty, okay? So imagine there's a king, right? And the king gets put into, like, this little underground, like, little rabbit warren, right? So it's like, here's this king squatting down in this, like, little underground, like, you know, network of holes and whatnot that just, there's some Mm. rabbits and moles and whatnot, maybe some rats in there. And he's down there for decades, decades, right? And he's not getting out, and he's just there for decades, maybe for the rest of his life. So I think that at a certain point, you know, in this parable anyway, he forgets his other reality. He forgets where he came from. He forgets who he is. And just every single day, all he sees is these rabbits, these moles, these rats, right? And he has to deal with that reality. And that ultimately becomes his reality. And and on some level, he, he has to make that reality because he has to deal with what's in front of him. And, and survive day to day. So he has to. But he forgets that he's a king. He forgets where he was before this. All right. The point I'm trying to make and uh, is that our, we live very strange lives. And this is why it's so important to learn Torah on a regular basis. It's really our only hope. It's our only hope of getting through this world in, in, a, in, a, in a cogent, intelligent way. We, the, 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 the crazy thing is, is that there are certain premises of reality that because... They're not in front of us every day or because we don't remind ourselves of them every single day. They become somewhat esoteric and abstract and, and not real in our own minds, even though they're the truest things about us. So in this example, this king is a king. And the fundamental, the, that story is just he's a king. And he doesn't stop being a king just because he's in another place. But he forgets the very premise 
of who he is and what's going on with him. You see, I'll give this to you from a completely different angle. I was talking with a friend of mine one time, and he was involved with a woman who was not mentally stable, in my opinion. And I said to him at one point, as he became more and more involved with her, I said, listen, it's fun to visit crazy land, but do you really want to live there? Right? But what he didn't, what, he, what, what happened in this relationship, and what happens in a lot of relationships, is that those initial red flags, if you ignore those initial red flags, then all of a sudden that just becomes your reality. You think, oh, this is like normal that, that people act like this or that this is my life. But it's, it's not normal. But once you ignore those initial red flags, then it becomes normal. You allow it to become normal. You see, what I'm really talking about is consciousness and existence right now. And I'll just make the point that I'm just building up to. You see, our fundamental relationship as human beings who are alive has to be with the fact that there's a world at all. That there's a God at all. That we exist at all. And our relationship has to be with the fact that here I am, what can I do? Like, you mean there's a world? You mean I'm alive? You mean I've got hands? And I believe that this is the, on a, on a, on a very deep level, what sort of separates kind of like those people whose consciousness is expanded and who are Sometimes the world likes to use this word enlightened. I don't know if that's a Jewish word at all, but just to try to communicate with you. And those people who aren't quite there yet is that their fundamental reality is with the fact that they're alive at all, that there's a world at all. And, and not just, oh, I got to go here and I got to do that and I got to call this person and I'm late on that thing and ah. Uh, because that's 99% of the world is that their whole reality is just, yeah, yeah, I get it. There's a world and I exist. <laughs> now, I've been waiting 15 minutes for you. Why are you so late? It's a different life, and it's a different world. And the thing is, is that these premises, these red flags in the other example, which this, I, these things that we sort of like go, yeah, 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 if we ignore them at our own peril, we ignore the fact that it's ever mind-blowing that there's a world at all, and that we're in it at all. And that we've been given free choice in this, you know, you talk about increasing sophisticated video games. I mean, how about reality itself, right? You talk about these multiplayer universes. How about the fact that we're, you know, how about the fact that we can push a chair and it falls down? 
How about the fact that we can give someone a compliment and they smile? How about the fact that you can give someone a hug and make them feel better? That's nuts. That's nuts that we actually are part of this, whatever it is. And the extent to which that's paramount in our thoughts, then all of a sudden, you're, then you got it. Then you got it. And I'm telling you, the only way that if you got it, the only way to keep that thought is by learning Torah on a regular basis. I promise you that is the only way to do it. Everything else will make it disappear. Will make that thought disappear. Everything else will make that thought disappear. Let me just give you an example. One of the, I would say, you know, Rosh Hashanah is in a few days, so we're at the end of the year. Probably one of the most impactful pieces of learning that came to me this year, right, is the following. And it's a, just a simple, very simple fact. But it just, it's kind of buried a little bit in the, in, in the Chumash, so it's, it doesn't pop out. But, but if you look, it's just right there. Just, you just have to kind of look at it the right way to see it. You have the crossing of the Red Sea, the splitting of the Red Sea. Probably people would agree, if they have to pick one miracle in the Torah, which is the greatest miracle there is, that's probably it. Right? We're about to get wiped out as a people. And all of a sudden the sea splits and the bottom becomes dry land. Right? There's not even any mud. And then we cross through and then our enemies chase us and then the water falls on them and not us. And then God throws in an extra miracle, by the way, which people don't discuss that much. But, but, but if you look in the Rashi, Rashi brings that this was as great a miracle. Right? When we get to the other side of the Red Sea, we turn around because psychologically, look how precious our thoughts are and our emotions and our feelings are to God. God says, you know something? You, you didn't see your enemies destroyed and you're going to walk around thinking they're still going to get you. Right? That any time, you know, you'll turn a corner and there they are. So God made the corpses of the Egyptians fly out of the water and then drop back in so that we could see that they're gone once and for all. So that we could have closure on the idea that they're going to get us. They're not going to get us. They're done. But look how sensitive God is to our frame of mind that he made a separate extra miracle just to give us this level of assurance that we didn't have to be afraid or walk around in fear. So that's a pretty great miracle. I mean, it's hard to, you know, that it's, it's hard to beat that as a miracle. But that's not what I want to tell you. What I want to tell you is that if you look in the Torah, just three days later, it says we went without water, and, and the rabbis explain that when the Torah talks about water, it's talking about Torah. So they say, okay, so it could be true on both levels, by the way. We could have also been without water, which you must admit is a tremendous, amazing irony. God just shows his mastery over water, and he can't give us a drink of water, right? So that in itself, so, you, so, so we don't have water, or we didn't learn Torah, maybe because we thought, oh, I'm so inspired, what do I need to learn Torah for? What, I'm ever going to forget this, right? 
And then it says, three days later, Amalek attacked us because we said the words, is God, because we didn't have the water. Now, we said, is God with us or not? So in other words, can you imagine how intense the garment of nature is? How concealing the veil of this world is that it can close in on our minds and make us ask the question, where is God? Is God with us? Is he not with us? Just days after seeing the greatest example of how much God is absolutely with us, not just in terms of our physical selves, but of our emotional selves. And three days later, we're saying, we're questioning God. Like, to what extent does he exist exactly? Because we went those three days without Torah study. Because, here's the point, here's the point, not, oh, you didn't learn Torah for three days, so I'm going to make you forget. No, that's not it. That, that nature, the forces of nature, meaning the physical universe, that's what I mean by nature, that the physical, the physical nature of the universe, materiality, is so intense and so strong that it can close back in on us in such a quick way even after such a massive revelation, we can go from the heights of understanding God's absolute magnificence and infinity and omnipresence and power to, is he even around? And if it's true for them in those circumstances, how much more true is it for us today? So do you see how essential Torah study is? Do you see how essential it is? You won't be able to engage with this idea of I exist. There's a world. Remember, we keep on forgetting the fact that God didn't have to create the world to begin with. We keep on thinking, okay, I'm born and I got to do this and I got to do that. Wait a second. God didn't have to make this world. So, So further into this, to engage directly with God on an ongoing basis. This is the ultimate. This is what we're striving for. This is the breakthrough. This is the breakthrough. And then comes a certain sense of security because you realize that if God is always here and my soul is a piece of God, that means Maybe my body will go away, but I'm never going away. Remember, it's a very important understanding in, in Jewish thought. You have to understand this. After 120, when we die, we leave our bodies behind, but our souls remain us with all of the memories and all of the data of us remains with us. We don't just disappear into God and then we're no more. We remain ourselves just in soul form, just without a body. So each one of us continues to exist as us forever. It's very important. You don't lose yourself ever. Very important. So if I know and I'm engaging with existence directly and I know God is always there and he put a piece of himself in me 
And I'm always going to be there as this manifestation of Him. Then what can I lose? What can anyone take away from me? If that's the, the foundation of my approach to life. What can anyone ever take away from me? Yeah, they can take away this, they can take away that. But, but it's, it's a PS. You know, I, I heard a few stories that I thought underscored this kind of um, approach, which is um, uh, Natan Sharansky was put into um, solitary confinement in the Soviet Union. And I didn't read his memoir directly. I understand it's a very great book. But someone was telling me that while he was in solitary confinement for a long period of time, he was like, God's here too. You know, like, what, what do they think that they can do to me? They can't do anything to me. Because I have this relationship with God. They can't do anything to me. And so he was able to survive that ordeal. And now he's like a, a, a major cabinet minister running the state of Israel from this lowly, solitary confinement refusenik in the Soviet Union to like being one of the people running the Jewish people. I heard another story like this about someone who was being beaten in the, in the Holocaust. And I don't know, he may have been even beaten to death. I don't even know. I don't even know what the end of this story is. But the Nazis were beating him to death. Whether they succeeded, I don't know. But the whole time he was saying, they can beat me all they like, they can't take away my learning from me. That didn't stop being the fact of existence and that essential relationship with God who's never going anywhere. And that piece of his soul and his portion in it, his Torah learning, is never going anywhere. So they can beat me all they like. They're never going to be able to take away my learning from me. Your relationship with God is yours. That's forever. No one can touch it. And as long as no one can touch it, if it's your fundamental reality, nothing can harm you. Nothing can hurt you. Whatever life's ups and downs are, we should only have ups. We should only be blessed with the most beautiful year with bounty and just all the simchas, everything good. And the third story that I heard, which is maybe not exactly this, but I think it is this. Yosef, his name was, of Meshisa. That's more or less the pronunciation. He, he was a really interesting, amazing figure, actually. When the Romans sacked the Beis Amigdash, the holy temple in Jerusalem, they were afraid to walk in. And... They figured, let's send in a Jew first and, you know, let him take something out. And then if he lives and he's not sort of struck down by God, then we'll realize that we can go in. Okay? That was their thinking. So you can imagine, so they come up to this Jew, Yosef, and they say to him, run in. And he's like, I'm not running, like as a Roman agent, uh, you know, as a representative of the Romans who has just destroyed the holy 
Beis Amigdash? I mean, we're still davening every single day, multiple times a day, that God should rebuild this. And it's, it's rebuilding is completely part and part with the, with the Mashiach, with the coming of the Messiah. In fact, they say, unless, one of the rules that the Rambam lays out, unless this person who you think may be the Messiah builds the Holy Temple, it's not the Messiah. Right? So it's a hard and fast. You can talk about whoever you like. If they didn't build the Holy Temple, the third Holy Temple, it's not the Messiah. Period. End. So, so it's a big deal. It's, the second one has just been destroyed. And this guy, Yosef, you can imagine where his rank was socially among the Jewish people that the Romans are saying, now you go in, take whatever you like, you can keep it. Right? And whatever. So he says, okay. In the beginning, he's completely on board, which gives you a sense of what his character must have been, right? Working with the enemy, who's just destroyed the holiest place in the world. He goes in and he takes out the golden menorah, right? Which is a giant piece of gold. It's made out of one piece of gold. That was one of the rules. So it's like this giant chunk of gold, you know? In fact, to show you how central the menorah is, in Italy today, they still have a frieze that you can see it to this day of the Romans marching out of Jerusalem or marching into Rome, carrying the golden menorah over their shoulders. That's the, like, that's the snapshot of the destruction of Israel. So you can imagine how big a prize the menorah was, right? That's to this day. You can see that in Rome today. So he runs in, and as the thing that he selected for himself he takes the menorah. And the Romans are like, wait a second. We, I know we said anything, but no, not, not anything. Just that, that one's ours, right? And then they say, run in and get something else. And he says, he breaks down. He says, I've already angered God so much. You want me to go in again? I can't do it. And they said, go in again. And they started beating him. And they beat him to death. He wouldn't go in. Can you imagine the level of tshuva? The the level of repair that this person who started off as being an agent of the Romans at our lowest point of the last 2,000 years and moments later is giving up his life rather than to betray the Jewish people, rather than to anger God, which was what his perception was. And this is one of the gifts that God has given us. Now listen carefully. Because existence surrounds us, because God is reality itself, because we're part and parcel of it, and we're involved in it, whether we're aware of it or not, all that has to happen is for us to become aware. And that can happen in the blink of an eye. Because once you realize where you are, then you're a different person. And that can take a fraction of a second. That's incredible. And Reb Shlomo puts it like this. He says, imagine you're on the Queen Mary, right? You're taking a, this, you know, it's a massive ship, right? 
So, and then you realize you're going in the wrong direction. You know, like one of those giant, giant cruise ships, you know how long it takes to turn one of those things around? It takes a long time for it to turn in the opposite direction. He says, but when it comes to tshuva, when it comes to our own lives, you know how long it takes? Blink of an eye. Blink of an eye. Look at this Yosef, who one moment he's taking the golden menorah, right? They put that on coins and stamps and state seals. He's taking it as his own private treasure, looting, literally looting the Beis Amigdash. And a moment later, he'd rather be beaten to death rather to do anything wrong. He got it. He got it. He got it. one moment. One moment. And then the trick is, once you realize this moment, which has been going on forever, and is never going to stop going on, then the next question is, how do you hold on to it? Right? We were saying Torah study and everything like this. So I just want to wrap it up and um, just share with you Just, you know, we've been playing with this the last couple of weeks, but I just want to say it one more time in maybe a slightly new way. And that's this idea of Elul, that you have, right now we're in the final moments of Elul, really, the last few days of Elul. And there are, there's all sorts of imagery attached to Elul. And I just want to zero in on two and just contrast them, okay? And tell you a very, very beautiful teaching from Rabbi Fund. So, these two things seem to go against each other. One is the fact that in Elul, the first day of Elul, historically speaking, and what happened, what's happened historically in the months, especially if they're major events, that they're still echoing into the present, very much so. Especially when we enter into those times. So right now we're on the time where Moshe, Moses, went up to Mount Sinai, and got the second luchos, the second tablets. Now remember, the first tablets were smashed, were broken, after we worshipped the golden calf. And then Moshe prays for another 40 days, and God says, come up to Mount Sinai again, and I'm going to give, them, I'm going to give you the second tablets. And what was on the second tablets was exactly what was on the first tablets. Okay, spiritually speaking, there were some differences, but, but in terms of the... The laws, they were, they were the same. They were the exact same, okay? So, so that's what happened. And Moshe stayed up there for 40 days, and he comes down on Yom Kippur, which, which signified the forgiveness of the sin of the golden calf, and also that we have the tablets back, right? Okay. The tablets that had been smashed, right? We have the new tablets now. On the same time, the mazel, the zodiac sign, is the basula, which is the virgin, for this time, for this, for Elul. So now, the question is, how do those two things go together? Because here are the second tablets. So the second tablets were the ones that were smashed. And here you have the basula. The basula, the virgin, represents someone who's never been touched, really. So... So really, that should 
correlate with the first tablets. If you want to say the basula, that's like the first tablets, right? Brand new. The second tablets are kind of like a second marriage, if you will, which doesn't exactly correlate with the basula. So how do those two things work together? Because they're happening at the same time. So obviously they do go together, but how do they go together? So now listen to this. I heard Rabbi Merifun say the following. He said that if you have like a vessel, like a bowl, like imagine a beautiful bowl, you know, and you, you break it, and then you put it back together again, it never looks as beautiful as it did the first time before it was broken. Right? He said, but, in our eyes, in our eyes, he says, but, in the eyes of heaven, if you have a bowl and it becomes smashed and you put it back together again, it's even more beautiful than it was the first time. In the eyes of heaven, it's even more beautiful the second time if you put it back together than it was the first time before it was broken at all. And now, let's revisit this question, and I think that this suggests a beautiful answer, which is these second tablets, when we pray for forgiveness, and we do tshuva, and we get our lives back together, all of a sudden we have this imagery of the basula, that which is untouched again. Because we're a different person at that point. And that different person is a brand new person. It's a, it's, it's, it's a version of us that's never existed before. And now all of a sudden the language of the basula, of the virgin, is actually very appropriate. It's extremely appropriate. And it's even more beautiful because we navigated the choppy, stormy waters of this world. And somehow we got through. It's a greater triumph than someone who was never knocked down to begin with. It's a far greater triumph. You see, this world seems so random. Like, what's going to happen today? What's going to happen tomorrow? I mean, look at what's going on in Syria right now. We were moments away from carpet bombing every information center, every, every electrical, you know, generator, every TV station, every munitions arsenal was moments away from being carpet bombed by U.S. tomahawks. And the next moment, you know, let's let Congress talk about it for six months. <laughs> so we we look at this world and, and it's like it seems so random. But if you actually look at the world, and we say it all the time, there is such magnificent and all pervasive structure in this world from the from the heavens to the subatomic particles, everything follows the most exact to the percentage of oxygen and nitrogen in the air, to our DNA, to the number of X chromosomes and Y chromosomes. 
Everything is so exquisitely exact. But the human experience itself is mysterious. And so we project that mysteriousness on the universe and we say everything is random. Everything is not random. Everything is not random. And God is infinitely patient. And so, really to wrap it up, on Rosh Hashanah, it says there, there are three books that are opened before us. The Book of Life, the book of those people who are, well, the book of the righteous, the book of the wicked, right? And the book of the person who's in between, right? And you also have the book of life, and as Reb Shlomo would say, the book of not so much, right? And it says a, a pen writes, right? Writes your name in, in one of these books. And the rabbis explain that who holds the pen, we hold the pen. We actually do the writing. We actually do the writing. And so I'll just leave you with a question, which is, are you living life or is life living you? Are you living life or is life living you? Are you deciding that how crazy it is that there's a world and how crazy it is that I even exist at all. And you know what? While I'm here in a body, here's what I want to accomplish and here's what I want to do. And I'm going to try my best to do it. Or is it, or are we just living an ongoing reactive existence? Sort of like, oh, I got to do this and I got to do that and I got to do this and I got to do that and I, and I completely forget what it even means that I'm alive on the most fundamental level. And that's our choice. That's our choice. That's our choice. To write yourself into the book of life, to write yourself into the book of righteousness, I think in some measure is to decide that I'm going to live my life. I'm not just going to have life live me. I'm not going to just go through the motions. I'm going, to, I'm going to stake out a position and I'm going to try to do X with all of my heart and I'm going to see what comes from that. I'm not going to let anyone stop me. Okay, good year.